There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, he said it before, but this time it's looking more and more likely that he's right, even the Reserve Bank of Australia is concerned. It's the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby, and we had to devote a podcast to it sometime. Australia's household debt. Australia is steeped in debt, not just government debt, but more importantly, private and household debt, household finance, as a proportion of disposable income was around 70% in the early 90s. Now it's up to 180%, a massive climb in the last 20 years or so. Those figures, by the way, come from the Reserve Bank of Australia, who is concerned about it as well, and frankly, seem unsure what to do about it. Meanwhile, house prices continue to rise in Sydney and Melbourne. In terms of housing affordability, Sydney is second in the world to Hong Kong, and Melbourne, even Adelaide, are not far behind. So Steve Keane, is there a housing crash looming in Australia? Yes, I think there finally is, uh, because the only reason it's been evaded so far is that every time it looked like happening, though they weren't actually conscious of how this mechanism worked, the Australian government had encouraged people back into mortgage debt again and kept the bubble going. And they're finally reaching the end game in that. And I, for one, am going to absolutely be delighted when it happens, uh, because that whole process as well as being uh, a way that people have been, have been having a go at me, of course, calling a bubble in the first place. Um, it, it's been such a case, source of, of smugness and complacency, both in Australian households but also Australian economic managers. I'm looking forward to seeing it happen. So there, I've said it. <laughs> right. So, uh, and you have said it before, of course. In fact, you, you predicted the house prices in... Uh, oh, no, in no, a... no. So I've said it will happen, but I, but I haven't said I'm going to enjoy watching it. Right. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy watching it. Oh, so okay. that's what's new now. Okay. But, um, yeah, this, but... Is my, this, is my, this is my pleasure at this bloody thing finally coming a cropper because it's been the longest running... Ponzi scheme on the planet, and it's about time Australia paid a price for it. Right, but you have said it was going to happen before. Uh, in fact, you said it would—you know—house prices would fall in Sydney, I think, particularly uh, by as much as forty percent. Is it that sort let's of? Clar- let's let's clarify that one. Yeah, please do, <laughs> uh, because that's what the property lobbies. I mean, it, it, it's amazing how the property lobby. I, I, I have, I've experienced fake news on my own on my own for some time over this one. So, <laughs> if we're going to my podcast, you're not going to get away with fake news here with me, mate. So. What I actually said in terms of that 40% call was in response to a question, I think, from Kerry O'Brien on the 7.30 report. And I said that uh, house prices in Japan fell 40% in the 10 to 15 years after their uh, bubble economy burst. And I saw no reason why the same would not apply in Australia. Now, that's always by analogy. Uh, and it was with the 10 to 15 year time horizon. It wasn't, in fact, at the time I hadn't really taken a look at property prices, to be honest. I just, uh, it was actually a question out of the blue and I answered it on the spot. Well, then I got the property lobby going for my jugular and other parts of my anatomy. And, um, and the whole bet emanated out of that. And I stuck, if you actually listen to where the bet was first pulled on me, this, for those who don't know this case, I was, uh, and taken to a bet about a house prices falling by that amount, and the loser between myself and the guy I called the bet, Rory Robinson, would have to walk from Parliament House to Mount Kosciuszko. 
Which you now, did. Now, as Rory, I did, but as Rory made that, uh, said that he, he's willing to make this bet, uh, and over the, over the top of him on the tape, which was a recording done at the uh, Parliament House in Canberra, uh, we were both invited speakers. That's the first time I'd ever met him, by the way. Um, he, he, he says, he says that, he said that for 40%, and I said, oh, over the next 10 to 15 years, mate, but yes, I'm willing to stick to that. Now, 10 to 15 years from when I made that is that the, the 10 year, the, the 10 year mark is October of next year. Right. The so, th- so, do, so do you think you're still, so, so do you think you could still be right? Well, in the sense of falling from a peak, yes, I think it will fall to something at that margin uh, because the the level of leverage has has driven prices up so much more, and it was obvious it was going to do it at the time because uh, just after, just before that uh, that bet was pulled on the Parliament House, uh, and this is actually this the timing of this is, is is interesting. I was interviewed for virtually half Australia's half the length of Australia's leading current affairs program with Kerry O'Brien, the thing called the 7.30 Report, by far the country's most significant current affairs show. Normally there's four or five items over 30 minutes. They did half of it with me one day and half of it the next day with one little bloke by the funny name of Kevin Rudd. (laughs) And uh, Kevin got the entire show, I think. And on that, uh, Kerry O'Brien savaged, uh, quite literally, savaged uh, Rudd over my calls about the state of the housing market and also the state of the economy with too much leverage. And what less, just over a week later, Rudd announced his economic stimulus plan, which included things I ag- agreed with, such as a $1,000 cash injection to every household, which is a bit like my idea of a private debt jubilee. But he also doubled the first-time owner's grant from seven dollars to $14,000 per, per first-home buyer and trebled it for new home buyers. And then the state of Victoria whacked an extra $14,000 on top of that. Now, at the time, that meant that if you were buying uh, a a new house on the periphery of Melbourne or in the um, regional Victoria, the government was giving you $35,000 when Mm. the median price in Victoria at the time, I think, was below $300,000. So you were getting getting more than than the deposit that the banks required at the time. That had sort of set off another bubble in house prices. And that's what I've now learnt the hard way, that the government is really there not to manage the economy, but to rescue the financial markets. And they did that very heavily with the Australian housing market. Well, given the, given the massive size of mortgages now and the, the expensive houses, a first home buyer's grant, you know, that sort of input is only going to be a small influence because, and yet, you know, we're still seeing, uh, because, you know, because house prices are so huge and yet they continue to go up. Well, what actually happened after that, and this is now where the Reserve Bank is now complicit, uh, because initially the Reserve Bank uh, thought that the China uh, minerals boom would go on forever. They were literally projecting in 10 and 15% rates of growth in demand for Australian minerals for 20 or 30 years. And on that basis, they were putting interest rates up to fight the inflation bogey they thought would come their way, which, of course, didn't happen. Uh, And the market started to fall over. Very, very early, I think about by 2012, it was coming up as that this boom they thought would go up to 2030 wasn't going to happen. So they started cutting rates at that stage, and you'll literally find in some of the press uh, material, I think also maybe in some of their official releases, they were hoping this would stimulate investment in the housing market. <laughs> now, consequently, they played a major role in, in having not first-home buyers pumping into the market now, but uh, but property speculators. Yeah. And if they yeah. haven't put rates up so much beforehand fighting this non-existent inflation bogey, 
uh, they might not have necessarily had such an impact on on causing house prices to rise, but they really thought this was a way of adjusting for the fact that there was going to be a slow, unexpected slowdown, at least unexpected by them, slowdown in demand for minerals. But it's the low interest so rates that's it, driving the price up, isn't it? I mean, people. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't understand how people are so short-sighted because I mean, this is not going to go on forever. But people think they can afford more because they're uh, it costs less to service their loans. Well, this this is this is where the causal mechanisms matter, and this is a global point. It's not just one about the Australian market. What drives rising house prices is rising mortgage credit. Now, I'm just going to elaborate what I mean by that because credit and terms like that are badly defined courtesy of the fact that they're not properly integrated in economic theory to begin with. But I define, obviously, debt as the number of dollars you owe. Credit is the change in the dollars you owe per year. Right. It's not that everything by years in terms of economic variables. So GDP, GDP is the flow of dollars per year and so is the flow of new mortgages. That's dollars per year. Now that's that's so that's 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 more what I define as mortgage credit. Change in mortgage credit is how much those new mortgages themselves are changing. And when you in the relationship I've done to the mathematics on and I'm publishing a paper when I finally get around to writing it, again courtesy of Patreon supporters largely, I'll finally have the time. A paper I'm writing with Paul Omer and and uh, and uh, Ricard is the the acceleration of because it's a change in mortgage credit it's actually the acceleration in mortgage debt that yeah. causes change in house prices and that's something we've actually done the statistics on for america quite strongly confirming the argument that change change in mortgage credit causes change in house prices so the trap that people fall into is thinking the house prices are rising because of population growth because of um, you know, housing always rises in price, et cetera, et cetera. What they, what they don't realise is the actual cause is rising mortgage credit, which is accelerating mortgage debt. Now, the catch is, of course, that nothing can accelerate forever. <laughs> no. We know the maximum. We know there's a speed limit in the galaxy. Okay, even light, nothing accelerates forever, including, of course, mortgage debt, and especially so when that credit itself is a major form of the economic stimulus in the economy. So, and I've done, I've done a, well, I've probably put a couple of posts up on, on Patreon and on this in, in detail over time, and I've done a couple of recent posts back on the debt deflation blog when I was active on that. If you look at the level of mortgage debt compared to GDP, then it's clearly obvious that you have a, like a minimum level that used to apply back when mortgages were not an economic issue back in the 50s and 60s of something like 20% of GDP and a maximum level which Australia is clearly heading towards uh, which is the situation that Denmark got itself into some some years back of about 120% as a maximum level that people can carry. So if you draw, if you imagine you draw the horizon, just think in terms of over time what that looks like as a curve, it's like an extended S, you stretch the S out. So you have a low level, it rises up and then it flattens out again. And that's the level we're heading towards. And of course, if you drop rates, you make that high, that level higher. The, the lower the rates become, the more the mortgage, the servicing cost declines. So you can actually reach a, a higher plateau. And that's what the Australian government's been encouraging uh, people towards. So you've got this elevated S. Then you say, okay, that's, that's the level of mortgage debt. What's the rate of change of it, which is new mortgages, which is mortgage credit? That's actually the slope of that curve. So if you think about the slope of that curve, it's very flat initially, then it gets steeper, and then at the inflection point on the S, it reaches the peak and it starts to fall. 
Now, that's the curve that drives demand in the actual economy. That's the change in overall debt, which is credit, which is what stimulates economic activity. But the one that drives house prices is the slope of that curve. That looks like a pimple. I mean, the, the, the peak of that pimple is at the, the point of inflection in the S. So Where you get the maximum rate of house price level is in the maximum slope of that hill, and that occurs even earlier, and that's the acceleration factor, and that's why house price crashes and asset price market crashes precede economic downturns, and that's the traffic that Australia's gotten in. So countries like Australia believe that house prices are going to continue rising so long as unemployment doesn't rise, but it's actually the other way around. When house prices stop rising, unemployment will rise because demand in the economy will start falling. Right. And yet, of course, you know, a lot of people believe, oh, it's all, it's, you know, house prices might, may flatten, but this idea of a crash, you know, this, this idea of money being withdrawn out of the economy is, is not widely, mm. is not a widely held belief, is it? And, uh, no. look, there's, there's a graph I'm looking at which shows, uh, interest paid as a percentage of disposable income, uh, to service household debt. And it's around 8%, you know, which is uh, obviously higher than interest rates, but not very high overall. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's not much higher than it has been in the past. So, you know, there's an argument that would say, well, okay, given that the cost of, of, of servicing your debt is not extraordinarily high, um, uh, does that mean that if you were to raise interest rates just a little bit, then that would cause a small rise and that would be enough to spook people to moderate their behavior without causing a crash? Well, it can spook them, but as soon as they stop borrowing, the crash occurs. It has, yeah. This, this is the catch, and that's, again, this is what conventional economics misses out on, but it's, it's obvious uh, there. And there's one point about house prices, um, people think that house prices always rise. It relates to the time in, now we're talking very, very long-term data. There's a wonderful data series called the Herengratch Canal Price Index, and that was put together by a real estate uh, economist back into the 1970s, I think. And what he did was he took records of the cost of houses, which were meticulously recorded from about 1630 along the Herengratch or Prince's Canal in Amsterdam. And if you take a look at that price index, you see that there are periods of 50 years where it rose and 70 years where it fell. So if you were born in any of those, any of those terms, if you were born in those sort of 50-year period of rising house prices, you'd think they always rise. If you're born in the 70-year period of declining, you think they always fall. We extrapolate the segment of that curve in which we're on as if it's going to go on for infinity. Yeah. But it doesn't. Well, we don't. And we don't even look. We don't even look at the graph, though, do we? We just. We don't look at the graphs. No, we, we just look, look at our own personal exists. experience. Yeah. So, look, Sydney. I mean, yeah. Sydney's yeah. median multiple. You know, the, the median house price divided by the median household income. It's twelve point two now. So, where mm. where was it when you first saw the alarm bells ringing? I mean, because when because I, I remember, was, I remember when you used to go to a bank. You know, you were lucky if you got three and a half times your income uh, for a mortgage. Exactly. 12.2 now. <laughs> you were lucky. You were like much less lucky if you got 12 times. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's the case. I, I, was, I was seeing this happening. Uh, the first time I saw it actually happening was in between 87 and 80 and 90 because uh, in response to the uh, stock market crash in October of 1987, the Australian government brought in what they call the first time bonus grant. That was the very first time it came in. And that hit me personally when I was actually going out to buy a property when I'd given up on share houses, long story there, and uh, and the prices rose dramatically up to until 1990 when when they crashed. 
at that stage. Um, by about, about a, in Sydney's cases, there was up to 30% fall in house prices after like a 50% rise uh, over over a two-year period when that, when that um, boost, government-inspired boost was there. And this is one reason why the Australian government goes for things like the first homeowner scheme, because they don't know why it works, but they've seen it's worked in the past. So it becomes a piece of advice from Treasury or from the political um, advisors to people uh, in, the, in, the, in the political parties in power. So, um, yeah, it's, I saw it in terms of median multiples this time round. I know in 1997 I was convinced the bubble had started in Sydney because my then wife asked me to buy an investment property and quote-unquote, typical bloody me, I said, no, we're into house prices are in a bubble and I refuse to ride a bubble. And in fact, as a personal investment choice, that was very bad thinking. I should have ridden the bubble, but I saw it starting in 1997. Yeah, that's right. We should all have ridden the bubble and then bailed out. About now seems like a good time, doesn't it? But uh, but maybe in five years' time, who knows? I mean, how? I mean, could it continue for another five or ten years? No, no. When you, this is one thing I argue in the new book, um, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? If you extrapolate, to, to, because you can maintaining the bubble requires accelerating mortgage debt and therefore rising mortgage credit to actually maintain the level of economic demand in the Australian economy as well as the house price levels, household debt would need to reach 170% of GDP by 2020. Now, the maximum that any country's ever carried, I think was Denmark, and this is about 2010, 2011, it had 140% of, uh, of, of GDP as its household debt level. I simply can't see Australia hitting 170%. No way. So that means that by between now and 2020, um, that rate of growth has to disappear. You'll therefore go from accelerating to decelerating mortgage debt. It's accelerating right now, by the way, in the aggregate. So prices are still got potential for rise. Yeah. But when that, uh, when you start reaching, hitting towards that, that ceiling level, then that's it for credit demand in the Australian economy. And then that means the house prices will tank at that stage. Well, you know, there are no signs yet. I mean, Sydney's clearance rates have, are still often, uh, over the last few months, often over 80% of the weekend. Uh, for those people, mm-hmm. you know, not, not familiar with uh, uh, a, a housing economy, which is largely driven by auctions and, uh, you know, like, like in the UK is not. In Australia, almost everything is sold at an auction. So auction clearance rates are an indication of how well property is moving along. 80% seems to be the norms. Uh, 78 Sydney suburbs have now passed the $2 million median house price mark. 78 suburbs. Mm. A, a four-bedroom house recently in Strathfield. I know Strathfield is hardly the most salubrious suburb of Sydney. Just sold. Four-bedroom house sold for $5.4 million. So it's not slowing in, mm. a, slowing in a hurry, is it? People clearly can't see the writing on the wall. They're just buying well, into it. The combination of other factors there we have to include it as well. One, of course, is Chinese buying. Yeah. And the, the, the two major factors for Chinese buying is getting your money out in case things go wrong in China and buying blue sky. And you can't buy blue sky for love nor money in China itself. So that's a major factor in, a, in, in terms of helping to inflate the prices. And just like in the UK, so long as you let massive, they have basically unlimited foreign buying, then that gives a, a price pressure for your economy, which has got nothing to do with its own own GDP or you know, people's income levels, and you can get these astronomical multiples coming out of that. And of course, that then means you're dependent on what happens in China. Now, of course, if a capital outflow 
becomes a serious worry for the Chinese government, which it is clearly happening, they can cut clamp down on that and then that can actually mean it's impossible to get your money out or you'll be forced to liquidate. So that's the little um, the extra gamble that Australians are holding on the on the house pricing. The other factor which is important in terms of things like that Strathfield uh, purchase price is urban consolidation. So a lot of those places are being bought to be demolished to have 20-storey buildings go up in their place uh, with large numbers of apartments and make a profit out of them. So that urban consolidation factor, which is the, the issue that Georgists focus upon so much, uh, saying that that actually, that increase in the price has got nothing to do with the person who actually owns the land. It's because of population change and and social policies like, you know, putting in a rail, rail line, again, taking the UK example, the, the Queen Elizabeth line that's going in right now will increase the valuation of houses within 500 metres of each of the stations and they will get the benefit of the price rise and the argument is you can actually pay for, to some extent, the, uh, the construction of the, of the public uh, utility by taxing the increase in land valuation caused by it and getting that money back uh, into the public purse. So there are multiple factors there that aren't... This isn't just, in other words, the mortgage debt that I'm focusing upon, but that is by far the ultimate determinant. Right. And uh, if but we're getting to the stage where that's reaching a ceiling, then it's good night for the housing bubbles. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, uh, was going to be my next question because it is, a, you know, for that to continue, it has to, uh, for that to continue to have the, the growth impact, obviously that money has got to keep, keep on being pumped in at the same order and accelerating rate. I mean, Philip Lowe, the uh, RBA governor, was in Canada recently because, of course, Canada is facing a similar problem. I know you write about it in your book, uh, even though your publicist hasn't sent me a copy yet, but uh, when I eventually get around to reading it, uh, we. Um, <laughs> Uh, Philip Lowe said, uh, in Canada, we're both attractive places for non-residents to invest their savings. We both have growing populations. He was talking about the investment by foreigners in housing because people obviously are seeing it safer to invest in bricks and mortar. Uh, but uh, when they don't anymore, um, is that is that the ma- is that what's actually going to cause the, the the turnaround? Do you think? Yeah, it is, and the. the- you know, we've got the the double whammy of a country like China, which you know, people have got a very good reason to want to get their money out and have safety. And also there's, there's educational factors. A lot of wealthy Chinese, uh, which is anybody who can afford to pay more than $2 million for a price, off, uh, a price for a house out of their own country. Uh, they want uh, Western-style education for their kids, and they know they're buying it by buying residency. There's all sorts of factors that complicate the story. But ultimately... Uh, what we're doing is, and this, this is the, the frustrating thing for me to watch as somebody I think she generally thinks about the economy, um, this is not investment. Making houses more expensive is not investment. Mm. We call it investment. And fundamentally what happens is the financial sector actually is creating money to, for, to support asset bubbles rather than creating money to help capitalism grow yeah. and or, or to become more efficient, which is ecologically the issue for the, for the future. So we are, we are boosting the uh, economy, we're boosting asset prices. That's where those crazy valuations come from rather than, you know, the old three to three, 2.5 to 3.5, which uh, other authors of the, de- the Demographia study say is the, the reasonable level that's profitable for builders and affordable for buyers, rather than that level we're now seeing multiples, as you said, in the Australian case of 12 times income by the house price. Uh, the result is we put all our money into that. Bugger all goes, whatever goes into actual boosting the productive capacity or the efficiency of our uh, industrial sector 
is, a, is, a, is an accidental side effect of that. And that's no way to run a capitalist economy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's partially that, isn't it? That that money could be, yeah, as you say, invested in, in far, far more constructive use of the money. But it's also soaking up the money that we do have, our disposable income. So people are not spending money on stuff in the high street or, uh, you know, weekend, yeah. weekends away and helping support the, uh, the, the local economy because they're too, because they are, you know, spending all their money that they have paying their debts off in, on, or paying for their mortgage. Yeah. And you're starting to see that. But this is the, the trouble when you start seeing finance become a parasite and not a, and not a lubricant for the economy. And that's clearly the situation now with debt levels like that. Uh, what people have is so-called disposable income. Uh, the money above what they're spending on consumption is all going into fin- financing their, their, their debt levels. And with that, uh, they're therefore being forced to spend less. So we're getting finance, expanding finance, being a cause of decline in economic prosperity. Again, that's why you know, we simply have to reform this in such a way that we don't fall into this trap once more. Given that it's all, you know, even at the most basic level, it's all so obvious. House prices are very high. That can't go on forever. Why would even, you know, wealthy Chinese people who made money, they've got, to, you know, they've got to have a brain between their ears. Why would they not be uh-huh. saying, well, okay, yep, there's lots of places with blue sky. Why would they be saying, let's put it into Sydney where clearly the housing market is overheated? Why wouldn't that money be spreading more around the Australian economy to other cities? Oh, well... No, it's, it, it, the, the detraction there is time zones. There are, there are circumstantial elements here. And I think China is on a time, the whole of China is on a time zone, which is only about one hour difference to, uh, to Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. And, uh, and that's, that's the easy thing. And they also want to be in reasonably sophisticated cities. Mm. So that's, uh, that's another factor which uh, puts them ahead of you know, Adelaide and, and, and to some extent Perth. But, but uh, <laughs> it's also, there's only one, there's only one Western country on the same rather time zone as as China, and that's Australia. The other thing, of course, you fly across the Pacific and get to Vancouver, and that's uh, that's a shorter journey. More time zones involved, obviously, but a shorter journey. So that's one of the reasons that those two cities uh, are sticking out like oh, the old expression, dogs balls. Yeah, the dogs um, bollocks. On the global yeah. on, yeah. on 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 global global economy because they are so amenable to this uh, in, international economy. Now, the real thing is, of course. What happens when China's own rate of growth starts to slow down? Will that, what's going to happen to that money? And that's happening right now. The Chinese numbers themselves are becoming highly fictional. And uh, the, the, the slowdown in growth is definitely happening. And if that then affects the amount of disposable money these people have, then that's another factor that's going to undermine these bubbles. But it's, you, you, you couldn't ask for a, a better combination of, of mismanagement of the global economy as we approach the ecological crisis we're facing this century as well. So we're ha- putting all our money to making house prices more expensive rather than uh, developing the engineers who can actually do something to geoengineer our way out of the crisis. So how quickly is this all going to change? I think in the next three years. So, so that's my, in terms of the bubble economies, Australia is clearly one of the biggest, but you've also got Canada there, South Korea as well as another one that I identified in the book, um, Belgium. So all these countries are approaching the same sort of ceiling level of debt. It's something over Australia's at the second highest. Switzerland's the only country with a higher level of household debt to GDP than Australia right now. Uh, but there's, these all countries are all hitting that you know, between one between 1.1 and 1.4 times GDP as a level of house housing debt. Uh, when you start hitting that absolute maximal level, then the demand just disappears. And suddenly you're in 
a different system than we experienced as we're going up the S-curve. Right. And this, and let's be clear on this. This is going to affect everyone because, of course, you know, there's the, the argument you often hear. I mean, um, uh, people who are investing, um, it, it's a different issue. But a lot of people go, well, you know, it's not really going to affect me. I've just got my one house. If my house was to halve huh. in value, it doesn't really affect me too much because if I need to sell it, I'll go and buy another house that's halved in value. Uh, but it's the, huh. it's the flow and effects of the economy that's the concern. It's lack of demand. The aggregate demand depends upon credit. And if credit, uh, credit becomes negative, then demand collapses. And if you've been relying on an economy, you know, as we have all been doing since the end of the Second World War, where, where credit is a, is a major component of demand and getting bigger over time, when it suddenly becomes zero or negative, then demand uh, collapses and you have a stagnant economy. And that's why I've, that there's two categorizations I developed in the book of the, the, the global economies. There are either the walking debt of debt the countries have already been through a crisis, and that's clearly the USA, but also Spain, UK, uh, Europe in general, uh, and Japan, obviously, back in 1990, the walking debt of debt. But there's also the zombies to be. Now, the zombies to be are between 9 and 16 of those, as, as I identified in the book. And uh, they're going to hit their wall in the next three years, and then we're all going to be the walking dead of debt. So we're, we're, welcome to zombie economics. Right. Well, do you know what? I really need to read that book sometime. Uh, if you could have a word with your publisher, that would be great. Uh, we'll talk. I'll twist their arms. <laughs> Look, one other statistic we haven't mentioned, which I think is worth mentioning. 40% of, uh, of all uh, home loans in Australia, 40%, 4 out of 10, are interest only, still Oh, my God. Uh, the, yeah. The, Ponzi. Ponzi, 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 Ponzi. That, that is scary, isn't it? It is scary. In fact, of all things, I was talking to a friend uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, he told me that uh, he's about to, about to sell an investment property of his because the um, the returns are negative. Of course, it's negatively geared. And it's been, for some, I think for, for three or four years, it's been interest only. And now the principal repayment kicks in. Right now, suddenly that means that they're, rather than losing something in the order of a hundred dollars a week, the losses are going to go to three or four hundred dollars a week, and we're talking somebody on a on a median wage. So uh, he's going to have to pull out of the market. He's selling that property at a loss. So uh, that is the real Ponzi factor, and letting these things happen in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Letting people take interest-only loans is Ponzi behaviour, and this has happened under the watchful eye of the Reserve Bank of Australia and what they call the uh, the APRA. Uh, uh, I think you should call it CAPRA rather than APRA, uh, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, all let this crap be developed by the banking sector. <laughs> the CAPRA. All right, okay, that could catch on. Uh, good to talk. Catch you again soon. Okay, mate. Bye. You have been warned, uh, Professor Steve Keen, on his favourite topic, Australian house prices ready to crash. Uh, that's it for this time on the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll catch you again very soon. Thanks for listening. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.